Hello and welcome to the latest segment of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine um, Residents and Medical Students Biosketch Series. Uh, we're speaking with another phenomenal researcher uh, in emergency medicine. Uh, we're here with Dr. Alexander Limke-King. Dr. Limke-King is the Director of Acute Care Research and Vice Chief of Research for the Duke Division of Emergency Medicine, as well as a Professor of Surgery. Received his MD from the University of Pennsylvania and an MHS from Duke University. Dr. Limpy-King, thank you very much for joining us. We're honored to have you on the recording. Yeah, well, thank you. It's an honor to be invited to this podcast series. I'm really um, tickled to be included with this group. Well, we're, we're excited to have you. It's, it's a fun conversation to have and certainly an interesting one. Um, before we get into to some of the questions here, I wanted to see if you just want to take a moment to give a brief introduction to yourself, tell a little bit about your journey through uh, medicine and into research. Sure, and um, it was interesting because I was just going through some old, we were cleaning out our attic and just going through some old photos. So I actually had a very stark reminder of how things got started uh, <laughs> concretely. So um, I was very fortunate along the way, like many people um, who you ask to have um, some great, mentors and people who helped me along the way. Um, so I started out as a medical student, um, went, to, went to college at Johns Hopkins, which is a very medically oriented uh, undergraduate school, obviously, um, and actually went to college with um, an interest in studying psychology. And so we actually did got to work with like some rat um, learning models um, and, me and memory mazes and that sort of thing, which was really cool actually. And so that was, I think, although a much different context, that was sort of my first experience with research in general. But um, in college, I kind of had the feeling like I got to know some of the, the people who do that kind of research. And I felt like I wanted to work with and interact more with humans. Um, and so um, chose, chose the path towards medical school. And um, I was fortunate enough to get into the University of Pennsylvania Medical School at the time and started out interested in psychiatry since that seemed to be a natural fit with psych psychological forms of research. And so um, in going through my clinical rotations, I found out about emergency medicine and fell in love with that, of course. So um, ended up doing my emergency medicine residency at Cook County Hospital in Chicago and um, had a great experience there learning how to care for patients and also engaging in as every resident had in my scholarly activity and we studied um, this notion of trying to do some time sampling on on EM staff as we transitioned to a new electronic medical record to see whether what proportion if you randomly sample people what they're what they're doing during the course of a shift what proportion of their time would they were spent documenting and um we found that uh you know obviously as you move to electronic medical record there was some increase in the amount of time they're spent on the chart and then um sorry I skipped over a, a, a significant part of my research part um pathway which was that um as a medical student we got to spend um, an entire year, um, uh, or sorry, entire three months um, period um, dedicated to a research project. And so I was fortunate enough to get matched up and um, work with Judd Hollander, um, who was at the University of Pennsylvania at the time. And he had just this sort of machine of um, research associates who were collecting data uh, from patients coming to the emergency department with chest pain, which included following them through their hospital stay if that was, uh, if they were admitted. And so I got to write up a paper and present it at SAM, which is where I found this old picture of me from 2001 with Judd um, afterward. So uh, a lot of good, good memories there. And then um, after residency, I ended up initially working at Thomas Jefferson University, um, working also on chest pain and then um, migrated here to Duke in um, the fall of 2006 and I've been here ever since. Wonderful, it's certainly quite the journey. Sounds like a few changes along the way, but certainly a broad depth 
actually a broad range of, of experiences. Um, yeah, and um, as I said, had multiple people helping me along the way, obviously, especially as you're you know, a medical student re resident and certainly as a junior faculty member, having um, some people just orient you to, to the basics of how do you get things done? How do you start a project or start a paper? Um, how do you propose an idea for a paper? So, um, you know, just to throw out, uh, throw out there for my residency project, there was Becky Roberts at Cook County and, and Jeff Shader, um, who later became chair at Cook County. They were very helpful. When I started at Thomas Jefferson, there were a number of folks, but um, 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 particularly um, Kevin Takakua was there and um, um, sorry, I'm blanking on the name for a second, but Linda um, from, from Thomas Jefferson was, was also really, uh, Linda Moon, sorry. Uh, Linda Davis Moon was also um, super helpful in getting me started in my research career. It's incredible the kind of impact that um, mentorship can have. I know for many medical students and especially early, um, early residents, oftentimes we find ourselves asking, you know, where can I find these mentors? Any words of advice, particularly for those of us who are just getting started of, of where to look for mentors, how to start that relationship? Yeah, and then, so I'll, I'll give you the kind of the case example of me at, at Duke. So when I showed up at Duke, there were two folks who were primarily interested in research. That was um, Charles Cairns and Abhi Chandra. And, um, and so, um, in terms of my, my overarching career, I'd say that I, um, I was fortunate enough that <clears throat> I don't think it's a career path that I could recommend to anybody because it's sort of like recommending people to like win the lottery <laughs> in that I was really fortunate to step into a, a place, an environment and position where there was a fledgling research program that needed a, um, um, a research director and I slid right in there. <laughs> but, um, but in general, you know, one of the first things I started doing was that there was at Duke, there's a, uh, we had a, what I would call a site-based research team. And so, you know, it means that we act as a site in multi-center trials and other observational studies. And so this team at the time, when I started in 2006 was mainly just two or three two coordinators and then, um, you know, the, the investigators, the two investigators who were primarily interested in research. And they had a weekly meeting and I essentially started showing up uninvited. I just showed up and started, they, they didn't, un, they weren't, un, they weren't, they were welcoming once I showed up, but I basically just kind of showed up and started um, um, attending the meetings regularly to find out what was going on and to with with no other agenda other than to see what was going on and to see what I could do, um, and so I I gradually learned sort of how um, the site based research process works in terms of um, you know what was the role of the clinical research coordinator what was the role of the investigator um, how does informed consent process work how does the IRB process work. Um, I was learning from the clinical research coordinators for most of the first four or five years that I was here at Duke. Um, anytime something new would come up, I would just say, oh, okay, how do we handle that? And they would basically tell me how they usually handled it. And that's how we did it. Very cool. I know that some of our research coordinators can be phenomenal uh, resources. And, and most of the ones that I've interacted with so far are so willing to, to provide advice or help you learn along the way, especially early in your career. It's, it's just like in clinical care where, you know, the nurses have so much to teach us as well. And, you know, it's not just people with an MD after their name who have something to teach us. And, um, you know, the sooner anyone can learn that, um, the better off you'll be for sure. Um, the, um, so that, so showing up, I guess, is the, the one thing that I, I would pass along to medical students. Um, and uh, the other part of that, I guess, is persistently showing, being persistent, and so persistently showing up is one thing. But 
Um, I think that eventually by, you know, just expressing an interest and showing that I was interested, um, what happened was that um, after a few years, um, Chuck Cairns um, had an opportunity to become chair at the University of North Carolina. And so he moved, he left Duke to, to do that. And Avi Chandra became the director of the team for um, several years. But um, Avi, in turn, wanted to focus more on his observational medicine um, and administrative role with the, our, our observation unit. And so because I had been... Um, regularly attending the coordinator meetings, um, it kind of fell to me initially in an interim step because I was, you know, maybe only three or four years out of out of residency at that point. And I, I told uh, my boss at the time, Mike Hawker, like, hey, um, yeah, I'm happy to step in and be the interim director because um, there's really nobody else. But, um, you know, we should ideally get somebody who, you know, like is more qualified <laughs> basically. And I told my boss that like, Hey, we should get somebody who's more qualified. And you know, the, that's uh, the, the observation at the time that we walked through over the next year or so is still true too. It's still true now, which is that it is difficult to find somebody who has had success and, and um, you know, um, out there who has some experience most of those people are happy where they are. And so it's hard to recruit them to your, your site to be, become your research director. You know, all the people who you'd want to be a research director are already research directors for the most part. Um, and so uh, uh, in terms of, um, and so I was fortunate enough to just, I ended up just staying on as a research director and here I am. But um, I think the lesson for students from that is, you know, showing up and being persistent and, um, you know, opportunities may come your way and, um, you know, saying yes to those opportunities, even though you might not feel fully prepared, um, provided you can, you know, point out what kind of support you would need from uh, your ultimately your bosses, but whether it's your program director or, um, you know, uh, a mentor um, is, is a good thing. Saying yes is a good thing. It's interesting you mentioned you know, that your, your department was still fairly young and they were building their research program and, and they were trying to figure out how to build this legacy. I know as a specialty, emergency medicine is still relatively young. You know, we're, we're in a lot of ways sort of the first generation of people who will, who will have really grown up with um, you know, mentors or a full generation of mentors ahead of us in emergency medicine. Uh, and with that in mind, we're seeing a lot of different interdepartmental interactions and in ways that those who have come before us may not have. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be within sort of a division of emergency medicine versus an independent department of emergency medicine and what some of your act interactions look like as you're trying to build that research program? Yeah, um, I would say it's it's no different in terms of that. What What is, um, you point, well, first I would say one thing is that my institution in general it does a, a pretty good job of breaking down silos or having just having less silos, I guess is another way to think of it or look at it. Um, and so the way it's organized is, is sort of set up for um, collaboration across disciplines a little bit, and that's helpful. Um, and, and in general, as you point out, what's happening now is that, you know, People, as you point out, certainly it's far easier to have um, mentors at a distance. And I, I think that, you know, we used to have, I mean, there, that's always been the case that people have had mentors at other institutions and whether it's because people have moved on or, or you know, just they meet at national meetings and they're working on something collaboratively. Um, and um, even more so now that, sort of tele um, relationship is easier and more commonplace and just sort of the norm in terms of how we're always doing, um, you know, um, tele telecommuting or tele uh, teleconferencing. So it, I think it's all the more normalized, which is great, I think, and creates a lot of opportunities for a lot of people. 
um, you know, the amount of time in the day hasn't changed. <laughs> so um, one of the things I think that um, is, is important in terms of establishing or finding mentors is um, be preparing uh, and, and as I mentioned, showing up and being persistent. You know, I, if some, I, I think most mentor, you can, I've, what I, the way I'd kind of phrase it for folks is that you can almost force somebody to be your mentor <laughs> um, in part by working hard and being diligent and preparing beforehand, whether before, you know, you actually have preparing um, before meeting with them, but also in general um, to following through on things that, um, that they um, offer you or, or, or assign you or that they kind of um, offer to you, I guess is a better term. So um, when I talk to folks around the country <clears throat> um, who've had some experience with mentoring students and residents, what I often hear is, yeah, I met with a student and then I never saw them again. And that's normal, I think, to an extent that students need to <clears throat> meet with a couple of folks and find who, where their interests are and what, they're, um, what they want to do. Um, but I think sometimes there's this just sort of, you know, um, earnest desire to try to um, do a project, but then, you know, there's too many other things that, um, that get in the way or the, you know, other things come up and, and they end up not doing the project. And, um, and so, you know, the, the mentor's experience is often that um, they'd be willing to mentor people, but, um, you know, the student wasn't interested in the project or the uh, idea. You mentioned uh, something in there that I think certainly resonates with all of us in, a, in an era where we seem to be constantly running back and forth between Zoom meetings, and that is the number of hours in the day has not increased despite the sort of increasing demands in our time. Um, I know one of the things that we hear constantly from medical students, residents, attendings, what have you, uh, is just such a, a limited amount of time. Um, what is, so roughly, what does your schedule look like? How much time do you dedicate to research uh, how much time are, do you still in our, do direct patient care very often? Yeah, so um, I don't really, and here's maybe a tip. I, I don't strictly keep track of the time I spend because I said that would take a certain amount of time in and of itself. <laughs> but um, I, I do know I, um, you know, obviously for, you know, accounting purposes, I have at this point um, a fair amount of um what we call protected time um, that's provided centrally from my boss and from from research funding and from grants. Um, but it certainly didn't start out that way. And if I were <clears throat> if if I took my CV when I finished residency and went around to um, you know academic programs in the EM right now with that CV that I, CV that I had in two thousand five, I doubt that I would be able to find many um, programs that would be willing to buy down my research time because I, I did when I, I didn't do a fellowship, I didn't come out with any um, sort of grants being written or grants being funded. And so um, I would think that it would be incredibly challenging for me to find anything other than a position working full a full clinical load which is actually how I started um, at Thomas Jefferson and at Duke. Um, so I started out working a full, um, completely full clinical load, um, which was um, something like, you know, 14 shifts a month. And so, um, you know, one, one, that's one way to calculate your time is like the number of shifts you're working clinically, but then it's also sort of how many projects or how many other things you're working on and um, to what extent. So, um, you know, I'm working probably half, a not even half a clinical load right now, um, but the amount of time I spend working or on, on research is probably more than compensating that, more than filling up that time. 
and then some um again with the email it's sort of hard to keep track of exactly how much time you spend like thinking or responding to emails or whatnot but um they definitely try to block out um what i would say though is is that time's much more flexible and flexibly used you know when you're on shift you're on shift and there's i'm not doing anything else um but on days like today, you know, I have a, a mostly meetings today. And so I have much more flexible use of my time. I've done a little bit of writing here and there. I had three or four meetings today. And so um, it's not, um, it, it's, uh, it, I, you may trade off, I may work more total hours, but I am able to be more flexible with the time. You mentioned that continued evolution, sort of the complexity of, of uh, emergency medicine and research and, and how in a lot of ways to, to get sort of dedicated research time, you, you really got to be more competitive increasingly so. I know one of the questions that a lot of our residents find themselves asking is, uh, should they consider a fellowship? Um, what kind of fellowship is, is beneficial? And you, we've, we've got a growing number of dedicated research fellowships. Is that something where they, they really want to commit that level of, of their career to research? Did you do a fellowship? Any advice for some of our residents who may be considering fellowships? Yes. So um, I did not do a fellowship um, following my residency. What I ended up trying to do after the fact was do things like I, I did go back and do a master's degree while still working as a full-time attending, which is not an experience I in, in, would particularly recommend to anyone. But um, it was, it was challenging. It's definitely, you know, right around the time my second son, my second child, my son was born. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot of, um, there was no free time during those, that year and a half. <laughs> um, but, um, and so that's where, um, I, I can say that I probably took longer to achieve what, um, many people who are coming out of fellowships um, or are able to achieve and maybe I'm still catching uh, still catching up to some of these folks from what I can see so a fellowship can definitely springboard you um, towards research success and independence much faster than trying to get your first academic job and then you know figure out how to you know get research and get research funding etc that was the path I ended up taking and um, it ended up working for me and then it ended up taking me a bit longer to get where others are doing. But, um, but uh, it, um, it would definitely make more sense now, nowadays to, uh, to do a fellowship. I think if, if one is really serious about a research career and just um, do it up front because it will, ultimately end up saving you time and make your kind of likelihood of success much greater. Okay, so you mentioned that that graduate degree and I know we've got a, a growing number of emergency medicine positions who have some form of graduate degree, whether that's something they completed during a fellowship uh, experience or, or like yourself, took the brave step of, of sort of doing it on their own there. Um, to, to be blunt, is that something that you felt was worth the investment, worth the energy? Has it helped you uh, in developing your research and academic skills? Um, yeah, I think it did. Absolutely. I learned so much from doing the master's degree. And, you know, it's, it's much like medical school. You know, not everything that you learn in medical school, the particular facts of it are, are, are required now or things that you recall and use every day now, but <clears throat> it was overall um, skill set and approach and, and learning how to, learning, learning that there were many different sort of types of research. And although, you know, I, I don't necessarily, I can't necessarily lead a study in every single type of um, research, I now am much more, um, fluent in, in the types of research. And so when it comes to writing a grant or coming up with a research idea or collaborating with others and advising and mentoring others, like, you know, when we talk about just forming a research question, I'm much more capable of doing that. And I, I would not have that, that degree of broad flexibility or broad 
have a broad, wouldn't have as broad of a base of knowledge without that master's degree. And, um, and so it was, I, I found it incredibly helpful, especially as someone who's sort of a, a vice chief of research. And so I am trying to help um, a wide range of people do research. Um, you know, having that master's degree has really helped me because not, not everybody is doing the same kinds of research or in the same area that I am. So um, without that master's degree, I don't know that I would be able to credibly do that. Um, I, 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 many people who end up having a research career um, do end up getting some form of additional training outside of just sort of medical school and residency and, and they often do find it helpful. Um, and in particular for some fields of research in particular, I think it can be almost, um, uh, almost necessary. the norm. It would be the almost necessary, yeah. Okay. So you, again, you, you've got a wonderful perspective here, not only as an individual researcher yourself, but as a, a vice chief of research and, uh, and coaching and mentoring others as they sort of built their, their research programs. Uh, having now presumably seen a, a number of, of hopefully successful and, and perhaps a few less successful projects get off the ground. Um, any advice for a, a resident or early physician who's getting started on a new project, how to put that on a path for success? Now that can that could almost be an entire series on its own. Uh, yeah. Um, well, one one thing is the nature of research is that you we are often exploring something new or a question that's new, at least ideally, or doing something that's somewhat novel, ideally. And so there's always a chance for failure. Um, and I've failed tons of times. And I think. Um, one goal, one of the reasons why having someone who's gone through those failures or i.e. a mentor can be so incredibly valuable, it's no guarantee, but it definitely can help reduce the chance that you're not just going to spin your wheels on something that isn't going to end up, you know, in a publication or something. Um, and so it, it definitely helps to have um, a mentor who at least is going to set you up with something that is doable, feasible, completable. You know, I, I've um, I've engaged when I first got started. I started looking at a lot of, you know, um, as an example, some some um, retrospective chart reviews that we were. I was interested in doing some kind of like observational cohort studies from, and just I stumbled my way through how to set up the database right. And then I stumbled my way. There's one paper that I was, I basically was ready to submit, but I had made a mistake in how I, you know, communicated with our statistician. And then by the time, um, which would basically have required her to redo the entire analysis. And so we never got it back. You know, she was busy and she, she never got back around doing the whole analysis over again, thanks to my mistake, which is, you know, understandable. And so I never got that paper published. So, um, you know, having someone who could help prevent you from making that kind of a mistake is, is incredibly valuable. Um, so mentorship is huge. The, the other side of it, I guess, is if you're willing to be patient and persistent, you can make a few mistakes here and there. And so, um, and hopefully don't make an unrecoverable mistake like I just described. <laughs> and so, um, you know, part of it is, again, just persisting and following through you know, and understanding that it, it just takes a really long time. Um, I would say on average, um, if you, if you and I were to come up with a research idea today, um, on the low end, it, it would take at least two to three years for us to get it submitted to a journal. Um, that's, you know, a relatively uncomplicated research idea, even if we were going to talk about, you know, a somewhat easily um, accessible data set, like getting um, a retrospective chart review. Um, if you had to collect the data yourself and do all of that work, I think three years is probably a good time frame from the moment you, you first come up with the idea to submitting it to a journal. And then of course, 
there's no guarantee it'll be accepted at the first journal and most of the times it's not. And so, you know, add on a couple of a, a variable period of time. I've had some some papers get, get shuttled around from journal to journal for even I'll say years. Um, so it can be a really long process, you know? Um, and I think students should be aware of that. It may extend even beyond you know, your formal time where you're, you're you know, spending on the research rotation or, or what have you. That's interesting. I wanna hit on two things that you, you brought up there. First being that timeline. Um, I know for, for many students and certainly for many residents, the thought of, of a two, three or year or longer project can be somewhat daunting. Certainly when we start thinking about something that extends beyond not only our rotation, but perhaps even our time as a medical student or our time as a resident. Uh, any suggestions for, for people who are still in those training phases of, of when to get onto a project or, or when they might, might even make sense to start their own project, recognizing that some of these can really take years to come to fruition? Yeah, well, some of that is, um, I guess the only other way to um, adjust to that is to start earlier, um, which is <laughs> not helpful to the second and third years uh, residents out there. <laughs> but um, but certainly, I, I think just recognizing it could take, it, it can take a while. Um, some of it, again, comes down to hopefully um, having a, having that frank discussion with whomever you're seeking out mentorship from, but that, um, about you know what an, ex, an a reasonable or acceptable timeline is. Um, but on the other hand, um, it it it's exceedingly hard to find a good project that is interesting and that you're willing to work on um, that's going to end up in a you know a a quick timeline, you know, most of the stuff that really is interesting is going to take longer. So I, I, I think that it's more important to work on something that you find interesting. You're more likely to enjoy the experience and more likely to actually complete it than to worry about, you know, when the payoff comes, you know, and for the most part, if you're a resident or a medical student, you've got time. So that's the one thing um, in terms of your career. Um, so that's the one thing we do have. And, and so I think, I think just having understanding and having a realistic expectation about it is probably the best thing I could recommend and, and being patient. It's interesting you talk about that idea of, of trying to get on early to try to have perhaps even some ideas for research early in residency, be prepared to sort of get the wheels turning. I know for a growing number of residents, research opportunities are something that they're specifically looking for in selecting a residency program and uh, during that interview process, what have you. Um, I think as increasingly so, we feel that pressure to, to sort of pick our path with an emergency medicine earlier on. Where along the way did you decide that sort of research and, and academic emergency medicine was where you were gonna find your home? Well, I, you know, that's interesting. I kind of went back and forth a little bit. I think um, obviously I was, when I was in college, I was interested in research in generally, although not medical research at the time. And then, you know, I actually went to medical school because I felt like I was more interested in being primarily a clinic, clinician than a researcher. And I would say that even after having done that medical student project, um, where I was able to present at SAM and I had a great experience with that. Even having done that and gotten, you know, uh, and we're, we were fortunate enough, I was able to submit it for publication um, and got it published. Even after that, I, I don't know that I was committed to an academic research career. I thought, you know, well, that was a great experience and I'm, I'm still interested in becoming a clinical emergency physician more than a researcher. It was really only that last year when in residency, when um, I really thought about what would my um, future look like and what would my career look like and what are the things that it would ultimately make me happy that I began to realize, yeah, I think I do want to have an academic career. I do want to, um, I, I knew that I loved the academic environment and wanted to continue to work with 
residents, um, for example, and students, at least clinically. Um, and I knew that I still had some interest in doing research at the time, although I, I don't know that I had a sophisticated understanding of what a research career in medicine really would entail. And I was able to learn some more of that over the coming years. But um, it, it certainly can come late. You know, I know there are a number of folks who really didn't think much about research um, even throughout residency. And then um, again, towards the tail end of residency, they really say, well, I'm willing to give it a go. I've even had some folks here at Duke where, um, you know, they come on faculty and they know they want to be um, teach at the bedside clearly, but um, then they realize, oh, I'm also interested in this topic. And then they get sort of tied into really doing it and, and doing a research um, on it. Um, we've had one folk, one of our colleagues who, you know, even went got tied in with a, a, um, a collaborator in hematology and is doing basic science um, bench, bench research now. And he'd never had any thought about doing that during residency. And just, you know, really after his first year of being on faculty, um, got, got into that opportunity. So I don't, I don't think it's ever too late. It's certainly, um, if, if you have an inkling sooner, of course, that, that can help a lot, a lot more because then you can make certain choices in terms of where you go to residency and, you know, and then of course doing a fellowship. And of course, you know, part I haven't even mentioned in all of this is, you know, your discussion with um, if you have got a family or a spouse is, is that, you know, having that conversation that can be super important. And I, I would certainly be remiss if I didn't um, mention in all of the things I described um, that I had a very supportive wife um, who supported me through a lot of these choices and a lot of these opportunities. Um, and um, that, that was critical as well. I, I, you know, obviously that's not something I can prescribed for people, but if you're fortunate enough to have that kind of a person in your life, then um, good for you. <laughs> That's encouraging. I know that work-life balance, the healthy family life while also having a successful career is certainly something we all strive for and has thankfully become an increasing part of the conversation around not only emergency medicine, but medicine in general. So now taking yeah. a look forward, um, I know you've got a number of projects still going on. You've got a, a number of your team members at, at Duke that have really got some impressive work going on. Uh, what does what does sort of the next few years look like on your end? What are some of your your goals over the next couple of years, and as well as sort of your long term goals uh, of what you'd like to see your career look like? Yeah, if I if I could just step back again um, before addressing the question, it, I think um, that. That is um, one of the things about research careers that I think maybe people don't um, appreciate, which is that um, I spend a lot of, I probably spend more total number of hours at work related things because I do research, um, but I'm, I think more happy and satisfied with my overall career and don't mind some of those additional total hours that such that, um, you know, I'm happier, which of course makes my family happier. And I feel like I'm more of a um, present person for my family and my, my children. Um, and so, you know, certainly there's an extreme to which, you know, spending more hours related to work is not healthy or helpful, but um, I, I don't think it's, you know, don't think the, the solution is not necessarily to, um, to try to reduce the number of hours at work to as low as possible. <laughs> um, I think it's to find something that is truly compatible with your life. And so there's, you know, my boss always points out and I agree that I don't think it's helpful to think of the work life divide. I think work is a part of your life. There's just life. And so, you know, you need to find work that's help, you know, meaningful and enjoyable enough that it is um, a part of your life, you know. Um, regarding getting back to more concretely, um, sort of my concrete near-term plans, you know, we've, um, as I mentioned, I'm 
vice chief of research for the division of emergency medicine at Duke broadly. I, um, and so I have a number of faculty that I'm um, helping to, to come along as well as um, oversee a, a graduate research fellowship. And so we have a fellow this year, he's starting his, his fellowship in partnership with a biomedical engineer um, I'm excited about that and trying to help guide him in his career. Um, in terms of my own research, we have a number of site-based research studies that are coming online that we're um, super overseeing. And so I'm excited about that. We're participating in a number of um, clinical research networks. So um, the SIREN network has a number of trials that I'm um, one of which I'm, I'm the sort of most, most responsible person at Duke. Um, and I'm also the co-PI on a um, clinical trial network focusing on pain research. And they're, they're about to start some of their specific trials looking at developing non-addictive treatments for pain, um, various types of pain. And so that's exciting because it's a little bit outside of my prior wheelhouse in that some of the patients would be uh, well, most of the patients will be recruited outside of the emergency department. And so that's a, a team science or and collaborative challenge for me that I'll have to work very closely with the people who work in those clinics actually to recruit patients. But I'm still kind of um, responsible for overseeing the, the study activities. Um, we have a lot of COVID research, which is still ongoing. And um, I'm involved in um, a number of proposals or that. And so that won't, hopefully COVID will go away, but the research won't go away. <laughs> um, a lot of the data sets are existing and, you know, we have some bio repositories. And so it will be, it's coming time to start to leverage those bio repositories that we worked so hard to establish and to try to gain some insight from them so that we learn generally about COVID, but also generally about infectious and inflammatory mechanisms of disease. Um, so that's a, a smattering of, of mostly what I'm thinking of. I probably left out some things that I probably should have mentioned, but um, that's an initial list. Together. It's a bit diverse, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I would say that I'm a poor example for, for people in terms of keeping a research focus. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I guess this ties in nicely to so one of the questions that we had earlier, a brief conversation we had earlier about finding that balance and, and finding sort of meaning of your work. Um, I guess, what does success look like for you? Uh, how do you find sort of a happy path forward? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that um, having, uh, I would, I would, probably think about success in, in broader terms, like, you know, overall satisfaction with my career and ability to um, sustainably um, provide for my family, not only financially, but also, you know, to be a, um, a good father and husband and, you know, um, participate in, in our, our family life and, and, um, to do that while also building a program here at Duke, a research program and, and helping other people um, to form their careers in research is definitely something I, I aspire to. Um, and, and, uh, and then to, I think, you know, research in general is a passion that's, is a passion that I, I would like to see it, um, as an activity continue to grow um, in our specialty, especially. I think emergency medicine has a somewhat unique relationship with research in that um, compared to some other subspecialties or specialties within the house of medicine that, um, you know, not everyone does like um, in-depth research during their, spe their specialty training in emergency medicine. And we're somewhat unique in that way. Um, I think a lot of the people who come to it, who are drawn to emergency medicine are drawn to it because the clinical elements of it and less so about the 
because um, we're not confined to one organ, you know, it's not like there are people in other organ specific specialties who are really just drawn to the, the science and the physiology of that particular organ, you know, and emergency medicine is not that way. So um, we have until, you know, we've had a longer sort of timeline to developing a, a research pipeline, I think. We're certainly, there, there are certainly places where you could point to that, you know, our specialty is developed an outstanding amount of success in research. Um, clearly emergency medicine played a critical role in a lot of all of the research related, well, the research related to COVID as far as, um, you know, clinical care and clinical trials. Much of that started in the emergency department and even much of it related to the public health and social determinants of health. I think emergency medicine is gonna continue to play an important role for, for that. Um, and so I just like to see research in general as a methodology and as a, um, a, a career focus continue to grow in our specialty and, um, and beyond, you know, so nationally, internationally, anything I can do to have an impact on you know, more folks thinking about conducting, reading about and appreciating, um, you know, research. Um, I think that would be sort of a, a career aspiration of mine. Sounds incredible. Uh, I know we, we've had some some hard questions, some heavy questions today, and, and thank you for your, for treasuring through them with us and sharing some incredible insights. To wrap it up here on something of a, hopefully a little more of a fun note. I know that often our research is limited by funding or, or by opportunities that may be available at our institution, but do you have any sort of in the back of your head sort of dream projects you might be thinking about? Something that if, if funding wasn't an issue, if resource availability wasn't an issue that you would love to explore, you'd love to see someone exploring over the next few years? Mm. Well, no, that's um, sort of where do I begin? There's a lot of, um, I probably um, have too limited ambition or too limited of a, a sight on, on this. The, the, the stock answer that I'll say that I was working on before, I'll say this, was, you know, having a, a um, something like a biomarker based stress test where you could, um, in the emergency department, have somebody either do some form of exercise or even, you know, we do the equivalent of a pharmacological stress test where people get dopamine. And then just by examining their, their um, blood biomarkers, you would be able to determine it, what the risk is for acute coronary syndrome. And, and um, related in a related fashion, you know, we, we are just scratching the surface in terms of how many different, you know, sub sub molecules we can analyze out of a single blood stream, blood sample, and really leveraging our ability to do that and applying that clinically would be a great research sort of accomplishment that I would love to. If there were no obstacles and no funding problems, but you know, thinking globally or more more ambitiously, I guess, is um, this notion. I think people are, are beginning to get there in terms of utilizing all the data accessible to us to actually care for patients in the emergency department. And when I say that, I'm not only talking about the stuff that's in the medical record, but like, you know, um, so my former, my medical student mentor, Judd Hollander said that, you know, CVS knows way more about you than your, your health system, you know, just by, they know your they know your shopping patterns. They know the products that you buy, and from that they can glean a lot about your, your health history. They know where you live. Um, you know all these things, and if we could really find some way to bring all that information to bear um, to the bedside, that would be a really cool thing. Um, even you know the government even keeps very detailed records about all of us, right? even if we could just leverage the information that's in, you know, an average census report. Um, I think that would be really interesting. 
So um, it sounds like think, we've all got our work cut out for us. Uh, yeah, that that's a start. I get me going. I could probably come up with a, a couple of more uh, out there ideas that I will, always wanted to do. I always had this idea also that um, you know our, our charting systems could be um, embedded within the physical landscape of the emergency department, so that a you know patients when they arrive the emergency department would have some means to basically either dictate or type in themselves what what it is that brings them to the emergency department instead of having our healthcare providers you know literally just write down what they say it seems kind of silly um, and to have like some kind of uh, I don't know if it's a combination like video recording system slash audio audio transcription system that's just automatically um, activated in the patient room so that when you go in and talk to the patient it automatically basically documents the encounter for you that would be cool would be very interesting and I, hopefully some of these things are part of the conversation nationwide and it'll be exciting to see what happens uh, Dr. Olympic yeah. thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us uh, we, we really appreciate your insights and your perspective on this and excited to see how some of our members put it into work yeah, I would definitely encourage those. There's probably a lot of folks out there with way better ideas than that. And uh, the, the capturing that spirit of imagination and fun and, um, you know, brainstorming is, is really half the fun of this job and half the fun of a research career. And don't ever lose, don't ever lose that. I love it. Thank you again to everyone who joined us for the latest edition of this uh, Biosketch series. Uh, keep your eyes open on the RAMS website as more of these come out over the coming year. It's been a wonderful collaboration between uh, RAMS and the uh, SAEM Research Committee, and we're excited to see more of these conversations coming up. Thank you again.